interrupted audio where it's going in and no out. I don't know if you're getting the same thing from my end. Yeah. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore topics of interest for leaders and professionals in education and a variety of other disciplines, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. So thank you all for tuning in. Um, a little early this week, we are, this is, as usual, uh, this is a a holiday week, um, and I know a number of people, uh, particularly in the education sector, are going to be um, traveling on vacation, uh, get a vacation this week. Uh, some people are out already this week, and but for the most part, I always try during this week to have uh, the weekly broadcast released early and always on Monday uh, during the the Thanksgiving holiday week. So welcome and thank you uh, so much for tuning in uh, for another episode of Perkins Platform. And and so today I have someone with me who actually is um, does not focus on leadership and does not focus, as you've seen, we've had a lot of people who've been on in neuroscience, sociology, biology, and so forth. And so today I have with me someone who is a computational social scientist, um, a PhD candidate in Stanford's uh, Department of Management Science and Engineering. And so I know probably some of you uh, may be thinking, but wait, I thought we were going to talk about college admission. So we have, uh, we are exactly going to do that. And some, uh, some of this is because um, the data is so extensive that this, it takes a lot of computing, statistical knowledge uh, to kind of really tease out what we're, what, we, what we're experiencing and why. And so today's guest, as I say, is a, is a candidate in, for his PhD in, in computational social science. So I'm, I'm happy to uh, introduce you uh, to Josh Grossman. Uh, welcome, Josh. Uh, thanks for having me. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, and thanks for the introduction. Well, glad to have you here. And I know um, that we we were having a little bit of technical difficulty. I hope uh, there's not too much of a echo or anything out there for people listening to us. But um, we're going to jump right in. Um, so, Josh, I'd love to hear a little bit uh, initially hear about your background and with, I, I guess I'd love, I know that you had, it, your bio states that you had a strong interest in public policy and understanding various aspects of, of, uh, of how racial differences um, show up in judicial decisions and college admissions. And so um, why don't we go all the way back and just tell me how, what made you uh, go from majoring in neurobiology. I know you had a minor in statistics, but how did you end up here uh, doing this great work in in looking at data sets and looking at uh, data uh, to to make some predictions and 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 uh, analysis? Yeah, so you know, there's a long version of the story and, and a little bit of the short version. So I'll I'll stick to the shorter version. But um, yeah, right. You know, now I'm I'm broadly interested. 
and problems at the intersection of data science and public policy, like you mentioned. Um, and my sort of recent uh, uh, things I focused on are, like you said, uh, racial bias in the judicial system. I've done some work on federal pretrial detention. And then more recently, I've also worked on uh, selective college admissions, and that's something we'll talk about today. But yeah, as an undergraduate, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. I uh, realized about midway through college that I didn't want to be a doctor. Um, for a number of reasons, I had been uh, teaching some sort of statistics on the side uh, as a tutor. And so I decided to dip my toes in statistics and data science about midway through college, realized I really loved it, sort of pivoted over, um, and then eventually found my way to uh, sort of graduate work in, in data science, uh, and specifically, like you said, computational social science um, in a very funny department at Stanford, management science and engineering. You know, you could argue I do neither of those things, but, uh, uh, you know, I sort of squarely fit in with this sort of computational social science work. Uh, and my advisor, you know, was in this department, and so it was kind of a nice natural fit. And I and I came in really interested in these problems at the intersection of, of data science and the criminal legal system. And so that mm. sort of got me in the door. Um, I also worked on, you know, a chatbot that taught high school algebra. I was interested in education, and and through a lot of twists and turns, that project uh, ended up turning into this project, the one the one that we're talking about today on on selective college admissions. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I know, um, especially at the beginning of this summer, this past summer, 2023, there was a, a pretty uh, um, big decision that was handed down mm-hmm. by, the, by the U.S. Supreme Court. And I know that it was on the minds of many of our students this summer in our um, law course uh, and what impact it was going to have on college admissions decisions. And so I'm sure, uh, although this, this preceded that, you know, kind of the, the, what's going to happen next, but I'd love to, for, for I know a lot of people don't know uh, much about the, the substance of that course. Um, what's the, you know, the, 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 the elevator version of what that, that court case was about um, with the Harvard uh, decision? Sure, so the term affirmative action first showed up in the 60s, um, and since then there have been several challenges um, at the Supreme Court level to affirmative action, some of which you know, were successful in overturning affirmative action. Some ended up imposing limits on affirmative action. Um, the first major case in 1978, uh, then you have cases in the early 2000s, more recently, you have the you know, Fisher One and Fisher Two in 2013 and 2016. And so this recent challenge to affirmative action, uh, which was filed all the way back in 2013 and then has taken about 10 years to decide, um, took a little bit of a different tack than past cases. Most of these past cases brought forward um, white plaintiffs who uh, claimed because of affirmative action, uh, they should have been admitted when they were in fact not. And this recent case, uh, Students for Fair Admission, SFFA, versus Harvard and later UNC, the University of North Carolina, um, was was brought uh, on behalf of Asian American applicants, uh, alleging that Asian Americans were admitted at lower rates to these universities than they should be. Um, And this was unfair. It was unfair discrimination. uh, and, And for that reason, affirmative action should be Overturned, and that's certainly the you know sort of uh, storyline from the plaintiff side. Um, I think there's sort of some broader issues to think about whether you know this this alleged Asian penalty uh, is really even related to 
um, affirmative action, and that's something we can get into. Um, but mm -hmm. that's the general idea. You know, brought on behalf yeah. of Asian Americans, um, ended up overturning affirmative action. Uh, mm -hmm. Was that sort of the best way to reduce this bias? You know, that's that's you know something I think we can dig into. Mm -hmm. So you used you used the data. What what is this? Uh, what was the database, um, and how do you get access to? The information about admissions decisions, because a lot of people uh, would assume that you know what, that that's confidential information, right? So, um, what what kind of database were you looking at? And how do you get access to being able to know who um, and maybe not maybe they're 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 uh, not um, specific to name naming who it is, but how do you get access to knowing? Uh, who it is that's not being admitted and being admitted. Right, it's an excellent question. Um, just because, like you mentioned, of sort of the data use agreement, I'm unable to release exactly um, who the data source is. Um, but what I can say is that we had, you know, the vast majority of applications to a set of highly selective, so schools with very low admission rates and high, uh, um, uh, 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 high yield rates, so conditional on being admitted, you know, the likelihood a student actually enrolls is very high. Um, yes. So, you know, getting access to this data is, you know, long process, lots of discussion. Uh, I can't get too much into the details, unfortunately. Um, but one thing you did mention that was interesting is, you know, how do we have access to this admissions data? Because admissions data is very hard to come by. Admissions data also isn't directly shared with the platform from which we um, acquired the data. Um, so how in the paper um, that's out now, the working paper, uh, you know, why did we state that we could get at close to an admissions outcome? And this is uh, a little bit of a nuanced point that I can try to give an overview of. Um, but sort of critically, in the paper, we don't talk about admission rates to particular colleges. Um, also, mm. we're not allowed to name even the number of colleges that were involved, I can only sort of provide the descriptors I've already provided. Um, mm -hmm. So we don't look at admission to a specific one of those colleges. Instead, what we look at is, uh, uh, or what we're trying to get at is admission to any one of those universities. Now, how does that work if we don't actually have admissions data? Mm -hmm. So I mentioned before that all of these schools have very high yield rates. So if a student is admitted, they're very likely to enroll. They're not guaranteed to enroll, um, but they're very likely. So if we look at one individual school, and let's say we had enrollment data at that school, that wouldn't quite give us admissions data because we're losing all of those students that, you know, maybe if we had all the applications, we had all the enrollments, we're missing those students that didn't actually enroll but who were admitted. But if instead we look at the joint over the entire set of schools, we look at the likelihood of a student enrolling in any one of these schools, what we do in the paper is we make this assumption that if a student is admitted to any one of these schools, they're going to in, uh, uh, enroll in one of these schools because of the sort of joint yield rate. If they were admitted to any one of these schools, we're gonna say they're almost certainly going to enroll in one of them. And because of that, we have access to enrollment data. We have access to enrollment data through this platform. If we make that assumption, we're able to call the outcome of enrollment at any one of these universities, the same thing as admission to any one of these universities. So that's mm -hmm. the key assumption that we make to get admissions data. Ah, gotcha, gotcha. That makes sense. And so, 
um, what, who, I guess I should say, who would be, uh, as far as universities are concerned, who would be the audience you're trying to reach here? I, maybe policymakers, um, but are, are universities interested in this? Yeah, you know, uh, uh, I, I think universities should be absolutely interested in this paper. Um, you know, the Harvard case, as it was, uh, you know, was, was trying to decide the question of, you know, if you have a white student and an Asian American student who have exactly the same qualifications, which is, you know, basically an impossible scenario, but statistically we can try to get at this question. You know, mm-hmm. the, the court was trying to ask, you know, was the Asian American student treated differently than the white student? We're not questioning the process. You know, we're not questioning the qualifications that we're taking into account. We're saying, you know, the Harvard admission process as it is, is it treating those students differently? Our paper is taking a little bit of a tack here, a different tack, and it's questioning uh, the sort of process itself. Our paper is asking questions like, well, if you take into account the fact that a student had a parent attend a university uh, that they apply, you know, the same university they apply to, they're a legacy student, or if a particular student lives in a particular region of the United States, what impact will that have on the racial and ethnic composition of the incoming class? So it's questioning sort of the process itself. And now why are universities interested in that? Ultimately, admissions offices at these schools are the deciders of what goes into making a qualified applicant. And Mm -hmm. they can say things like, yes, we're gonna take into account the fact that the applicant's parent went to this college, but if they make that decision, they need to be aware of the consequences of that decision and specifically the consequences on the racial composition of the class. Mm-hmm. And so and so does that mean that uh, legacy admits are considered affirmative action too? You know, in, in a sense, it's, you know, I'm not an admissions counselor, so I'm not able to say exactly how legacy is taken to account um, mm-hmm. you know, in an admissions office. Are they admitting all legacy students with a higher probability? Are they admitting only the legacy students who donate a sufficient amount of money to the university? I'm not able to say exactly how it's operationalized um, on an individual basis, but I can say in the aggregate, it looks like these students with legacy are admitted uh, at two to three times higher rates than students who uh, uh, don't have legacy, but have the same, let's say, academic credentials. So that's something we show in the paper. And the big problem with this is well, now, who has legacy? Who has legacy? You look exactly. at historical patterns of migration to the United States, and at least, you know, with respect to the groups we consider, you know, East Asian and Southeast Asian immigration to the United States really started accelerating in the 70s. For South Asian students, it really started in the 90s. So there simply haven't been that many generations to attend these schools. Because of mm-hmm. that, you see these crazy gaps where South Asian students in our, in our data set are fully uh, six times less likely to be a legacy than a white student with similar academic credentials. And that's around mm-hmm. three to four times for Southeast mm-hmm. Asian and East Asian students. And this holds as well for black students and Latino students as well. It's, mm-hmm. it's not quite as high, but they're still a lot less likely than white students with similar credentials to have legacy. Um, and because of that, if you're gonna give a legacy boost, you know, in a sense, you could be giving a boost to white students. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, it, it's interesting because in your paper, you um, you you really focus on on the the Asian college admissions. Uh, 
which leads me so that that's really um thing findings given what is is pretty widely held uh assumptions and misperception about um asian admission to very selective schools and so if if given this um what does it i i guess if if we are if because part of the argument has historically been that we need to have um uh, a a very diverse student body and <clears throat> and so what does that look like if if we if we're saying looking at what you said that there were five six or more times uh likely not to be admitted um then what what is it what would it take then for those what would those numbers look like because there is certainly a widely held perception that that um the stu the students that are admitted uh, are largely Asian students, you know, as is stated, I've heard that um, a lot, particularly in places like Stanford, Columbia, Harvard, Yale. Um, so what would admission need to look like if that were not the case? Mm -hmm. Sure, and just to clarify a few points. So I just wanted to say that um, students with about where we were seeing two to three times more likely, just conditional on having the same uh, test scores, so the same standardized test scores. The six times number was the fact that uh, white students were six times as likely uh, to have South Asian students uh, mm. with similar test scores. I just wanted to clarify yeah. Um, yeah. Um, that statement. But I also yeah. want to clarify the question just a little bit about, you know, what does admission have to look like in order to sort of retain uh, diversity. I just want to clarify, you know, uh, there's a few few ways of looking at this. You know, it's one question is how could have universities done this in the past? And of course, mm -hmm. they had affirmative action at their disposal in that case. Um, but sort of moving forward, you know, it becomes a little bit trickier, you know, without affirmative action, how do you implement an admissions policy that still leads to a, you know, sufficiently diverse class? And that's definitely a difficult question. But I just, I just, if, if you don't mind, if you could clarify the yeah. question just a little bit, I want to make sure I'm answering yeah. the right thing. Yes, yes, absolutely. I, you know, it, what it, what, what I hear, and I, I appreciate you clarifying about the the number of times more. I was just thinking about though, if we, so if we have as a goal to have a diverse group of students, that that we we need to have a diverse group of students. Um, however, that there are groups that, from the statistics where they are they have been um less likely to be admitted um you know i i guess what I'm, I'm i'm struggling with is understanding so then what can we do to to satisfy both of those and is that the dilemma in yeah. front of us yeah right right that makes sense so sort of looking looking forward now you know what components of the admissions process uh, appear to be leading to, uh, uh, you know, favoring white students over students yeah. of other groups and admissions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so there's there's a few few pieces of this, and I guess I do want to emphasize again, you know, I'm not an admissions counselor, so it's difficult for me to know exactly, you know, where money is coming in, how much the yeah. university depends on admitting certain kinds of students, but sort of sure. with that in mind, 
you know, things to think about. One, like we just talked about with legacy, um, you know, legacy students are more likely to be white than, than yes. students of sort of other, uh, uh, other groups conditional on having the same sort of high test scores. And so, you know, one thing is, well, if, if colleges were to not considered legacy status in admissions, you know, this might change, you know, the incoming class to be a little bit more diverse and reduce, uh, you know, an overwhelming representation potentially of white students. Um, we mentioned the paper as well, uh, geography. If you look at um, the admissions rates of students who have high test scores and also who aren't legacy, so taking legacy out of the question, if we look at white students without legacy who are high test, uh, have high test scores, and we look at all of the states in the country, and we look at their admission rates to these schools, we can see that the admission rates tend to be lower for students from California and the West Coast, um, and they tend to be higher for students from the Northeast. Now, you know, perhaps schools uh, uh, that we're considering in, in um, our analysis are favoring students from the Northeast. And, you know, that's totally legal, totally fine. But the thing to keep in mind is California has, you know, the second highest concentration of Asian American applicants uh, after Hawaii uh, in our entire data set. And so you can say, mm -hmm. yes, you know, I'm going to disfavor uh, applicants from California because I want representation from across the country. But what you're going to end up doing is disfavoring Asian American students. And so that's, you know, a decision that schools have to make. Um, mm. You know, do, do we really value this geographic diversity? Because it may uh, lead to sort of reduced racial and ethnic diversity. Um, one mm. other point to make here as well is if you look at the uh, athletes at a lot of these very selective schools, you can see that they tend to be um, overwhelmingly white. Um, and, you know, a lot of these athletic programs you know, the vast majority of them, there aren't necessarily generating revenue for the university. You know, they might be providing benefits another way. You know, perhaps students who are athletes tend to donate more going into the future. You know, it builds morale for the school. But again, you know, if you're going to continue to recruit folks who are playing a lot of these sports that are really only accessible to people who are of higher socioeconomic status, who of course then tend to be uh, wider on average, uh, you're also going to get a class that's less diverse. So, you know, schools in the wake of the elimination of affirmative action need to consider, you know, these three different factors, along with other sort of considerations in the admissions uh, system, um, if they're going to sort of retain the diversity that they've been able to sustain uh, over the past few decades. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I, I thank you for that. That's very helpful in understanding. Uh, you, you mentioned that um, one of your key limitations was that you didn't have access to kind of a complete application. Uh, there, likewise, start talking about whether it's legacy or not. You mentioned athletes, but that um, there are, even, even when we, let's say, we take away uh, legacy admissions uh, points or otherwise, that uh, in a lot of cases, the, the, aspects that are valued also favor socially economic social economic uh um higher groups uh than than not and and so i i'm just thinking about what what are your thoughts about if you had how that might add a different flavor to your analysis to be able to look at other application materials uh, is it about then 
what the school values in terms of what a well-rounded student then becomes. Because I, I would imagine some of the, what you did look at was test scores, uh, maybe high school ranking, um, where those were. I know it's a complicated uh, um, formula, but but what do you think that would add if you if you did have the ability to do that? And then the follow-up is, do you plan to do more of that maybe on a much smaller basis. I know, I think you, it said that you, you had about 600,000 records in your other store in, in, in this particular study, but what do you, what do you, do you, do you <clears throat> think you would uh, get from that? And then do you plan to do more of that kind of analysis? Yeah, so there's a lot of a lot of great threads here. So um, just to reiterate some of the things we didn't have direct access to, you know, we didn't know if a student was indeed an athletic recruit. We constructed, you know, what we thought was proxy for being an athletic recruit, but we don't know it with certainty. We don't have the student's essays. We don't have their teacher recommendations, their counselor recommendations. Critically, we don't have you know, the major that they intended, and, and that can certainly sway admissions. But one thing I want to note is that our study um, isn't trying to address the form of discrimination called disparate treatment that really requires access to you know, every single variable that was taken in, into account in a decision. You know, ultimately, our paper isn't trying to answer that question I mentioned in the beginning of you take an Asian American student and a white student with exactly the same qualifications, you know, is the Asian American student admitted at a lower rate? And that's a very difficult question to answer. Disparate treatment is very hard uh, to show statistically because often you don't have access to all these variables. Mm -hmm. Critically, what we're looking at is instead of form of discrimination called disparate impact, where mm -hmm. the facially race-neutral decision policy, when it takes into account certain factors that aren't race, it can have different effects on different race groups. So for example, with legacy, if you're gonna give a boost to students who have legacy, more legacy students are white, and so more white students are gonna benefit from you know, this policy. And so it's, it's a subtly different form uh, of potential discrimination, disparate impact. Yeah. Um, and so that's yeah. one piece. So even without access to all of these additional factors, uh, which are incredibly difficult to get a hold of, very few studies have been able to look at all of these factors. It often requires partnering with admissions offices. Um, very difficult. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, with access to all those factors, you could do that sort of disparate treatment style analysis that they did in the Harvard case. Um, but with the factors we have access to, we have to look at things a little bit differently. Now, I know you also mentioned moving forward. Um, moving forward, I think, you know, for the most part, we sort of analyze the data set to the extent that we will. Um, you know, if, if there's future work to be done in this space, it'll have to be done um, with a new data set, perhaps with a different partnership and, you know, direct access to admission records from a different university. Um, so yeah, so at least moving forward, this is about um, where the analysis will, will sort of wrap up. Of course, the paper is still under review, um, but you know, once that paper is, is sort of out, that'll be sort of the end, at least with, with this data set. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm anxious to see what that looks like. Um, you know, and here we are, I, you know, I told you it was gonna go really, really fast and we're almost at the end of our time, but I do wanna ask you a couple more questions. One is when you, when you sure. started this, just as most, research studies go, you have some ideas about what you're going to find. Um, and uh, a lot of times when you, when you do this, there's some surprises. 
Was there anything that you would say was a surprise to you that you learned from this? Absolutely. So I think by and large, the largest surprise was actually something that sort of, you know, was, was stumbled upon by accident, as, as is the case that often happens with research. Um, but because of the data source we had, uh, we were fortunately able to do something um, that I think is, is important to do when you, when you can do it. But and that is rather than sort of treating Asian American students as this monolith, you know, Asian mm-hmm. gigantic part of the world's population, you know, we, we shouldn't consider just as this one group. One wonderful thing that we had access to with this data is we could actually actually see um, region of origin. So instead of uh-huh. just knowing that they were Asian American, we could see, okay, were yeah. they South Asian? Were they East yeah. Asian? Were they Southeast Asian? And of, and of course, there's a lot more heterogeneity even within those regions, but it's yeah, very right. rare for studies of this kind. And, and I don't think there are other admission studies that are able to take into account things of that granularity. Um, but one thing we saw, uh, you know, given that, that um, uh, uh, those, those groups is we saw uh, pretty massive heterogeneity in the size of our results across those subgroups. So to give oh. you a sort of sense of, of what this is like, if you, if you look at uh, admission rates um, of applicants with the same academics and the same extracurricular participation as we could see it in the data, you know, the activities they participated in, the hours, the leadership, how many years they participated in it. If you were to take uh, a white student and a South Asian student uh, with those same qualifications, the South Asian student would have 50%, nearly 50% lower odds of admission, whereas the same comparison for Southeast Asian and East Asian student uh, is just under 20% lower odds. Mm. So it's really this very, very large difference and a lot of heterogeneity, and that certainly was not something we expected. So I think that's really one of the most interesting takeaways from this paper and sort of prompts future analysis um, beyond just the sort of standard ethnic and racial labels that we're sort of used to uh, in the literature. Yeah. Wow, thank you. That's really uh, uh, powerful, and I'm sure that there are going to be a lot of people looking at this, and um, especially you get to your final version um, and and some some other analyses. I'm sure this will um, be a topic of discussion in at policy tables and admissions uh, tables as well uh, for a number of years. Um, So listen, thank you so much for uh, giving me a little bit of your time. Um, I know there are people who will want to um, follow you and, and especially at the, you're at the cutting edge of this, this research It's so timely. You guys were as a team, were working on this long before this decision came down this summer. So um, you're at the forefront Mm -hmm. of this. And um, I'm sure people are going to look and, and want more answers. Um, so please share where people can uh, find your work and, and follow you, support you, any social media handles or places where um, you, are, you are writing and, and putting this. This is very important work. Um, I referred to a paper, for those of you who are listening in, um, the uh, – paper that I'm referring to was published by the National Bureau uh, of, uh, in the National Bureau of uh, Economic Research, um, a team headed by uh, Josh. Um, the title of the paper is The Desperate 
impacts of college admissions policies on Asian American applicants. But please share, like I said, those any places in other books or articles where people interested in this topic might find some of your work. Looks like we we lost you. Yeah, yeah. For, there we go. Oh, I'm, I can hear you. I'm now. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for pe- yeah, for for people interested in the topic more broadly, you know, I think Google search will get you to a lot of super interesting articles. There's lots of fantastic opinion pieces about this work. Um, personally, you know, I'm an infrequent poster on Twitter. My Twitter handle is is at uh, or rather X handle is Josh D Grossman G R O S S M A N. Uh, my personal website is J uh, dgrossman.com, jdgrossman.com. And I'll, I'll be sure to post any updates, um, on, on either of those, um, uh, locations. Yes. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Josh. I'll be looking, uh, for more of your work and, uh, just wishing you all the success and, uh, keep up the good work. And until we see your work again, go well, stay well. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me.